You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, February 17, 2006, show number 9. Today's topics are flirting basics and trig-to-load small science. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org, or you can Skype us at IntIce. Here's your host, Robert Rapling. Hi there, and welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. This is Rob. And this is Tiffany. And today, in the spirit of Valentine's Day and doing everything together, we're going to be doing one of our infamous couples casts. The topic for this particular one is not really geek dating. It's more basic flirting, kind of a foundation to geek dating. Sort of a prerequisite. The skills that you'll learn here will actually help you build a social network, engage other people in all interests other than romantic, Although you may also use these skills to help meet people from romantic purposes later on. So what we'll do today is we will start out by defining what flirting is and what it is not. And then we'll tell you how to build a flirting foundation and then how to build your flirting skills. You'll do this alone. You'll also do this with a friend and you will also experiment on other people. Kind of amazing. You can, in fact, practice flirting all by yourself. Isn't that scary? So without further ado, I'd like to define for you, with Rob's help, what flirting is not. And this is really useful because so many people have an odd concept of what flirting has to be. One of the things that it's not is sexual, or at least it doesn't have to be. Flirting occurs any time you're talking to someone who you want to like you. I was actually surprised after analyzing what they say about flirting that what I do when I'm talking with other geeks, just hanging out geeking, is essentially flirting because the methods I use to communicate with them are identical. Another thing that flirting is not is, it's definitely not a dirty word, and it's also not the same thing as hunting, which is very sexual and very aggressive behavior. Prowling. (laughs) Prowling for people with this one goal in mind. It's also not leading people on. No. No, if you're being dishonest when you're flirting, then there's a problem. This is true. It's also not something that only adults do or that people only do with the sex that they're interested in. In fact, everybody flirts. Children flirt. Children are, in fact, very good at flirting. Children are incorrigible flirts. Around each other, with their teachers, with their parents. Flirting is the way children get people to like them. Finally, we already talked about dishonesty. It is not false or insincere flattery. And it's not something that you do or that you should do with a specific gain for yourself in mind. So with that, what is it? What's flirting? That's a good question. We had to peruse many sources to come up with a concise answer to this one. And what it comes down to is that flirting is sincere interest in another person for any of a variety of reasons. It basically is sharing with that person in one form or another that you are interested in something about them, that you like something about them, and it is exemplified by a focused interest in that person. It should be stated that you're specifically expressing interest in that person, not trying to get them interested in you. Although that's a common effect of this. If a flirting dialogue starts, and the person you're flirting with starts to flirt back with you, then that is a logical step for this to take, but that's not the goal. No, it's not. One of the things that flirting tends to achieve is flirting reciprocation. And that's where we talk about the flirting dialogue that can ensue. It's also fun and it's playful. It uses a lot of humor. In many cases, flirting involves humor. And usually it will be rewarding to both you, the flirter, and also to the flirty. Usually. Not always. If done right. And for the flirty, that's because it makes them feel special. It evokes in them a positive reaction and then they are usually more inclined to return the favor, to flirt with the flirter, and then make the flirter feel special. Flirting also makes you feel better about yourself. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, anytime you have to focus positively on someone, that's going to put you in a more positive mindset. And that tends to make you feel good. In addition, though, when that person in turn responds favorably to you, that also makes you feel better. And so you have these little jumps in positive attitude and behavior while you're in a flirting scenario. 
So that's what flirting is and also what it is not. The next thing that we need to talk about is how to build a flirting foundation. Right. Before we actually jump into the practice of flirting, we need to set up a foundation from which you can flirt. This may seem like a waste of time if you think that you can just jump right in and flirt, but really there's a number of things that a lot of would-be flirters don't do properly, and if you go into flirting without them, you're probably going to botch it. So the first of these is you need to get into a positive mindset, that voice inside your head that tells you, this will never work for me. I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to be so shunned and embarrassed. You need to quiet that voice. Even if just briefly enough to practice some of these exercises a couple of times and to get the positive feedback. But you absolutely must not set up that negative expectation because one of two results will occur. The first is that you just may not ever flirt at all, in which case you never get any practice and you never get better at it. Or the other is that you absolutely will fail. If you set yourself up in your mind to fail, you'll do it. Now we're not necessarily talking about affirmations here. I I am a good person and I can flirt. <laughs> no, but there is such a thing as thinking yourself right into a failure. And that's just something to be avoided. If you think that you are a pathetic and worthless person, then whoever you're communicating with, it'll convey in whatever you say to that other person. At least let yourself start on a neutral footing. That's right. Don't beat yourself up in advance. Then we get into some composure building ideas and exercises. Composure is pretty much a signal to noise ratio issue. If you've ever been talking on a really staticky telephone, then you know that if there's a lot of noise in the signal, then you're not going to be able to understand what the other person's saying. Flirting is the exact same way. If your hair is all askew and your shirt is buttoned wrong and you stink, or you have really obnoxious, nervous tics that are extremely noticeable, or you permanently scowl, these are things that are going to act as noise to completely disrupt whatever message you're trying to convey to that other person. And this is really important. One of the sources that we'll refer back to in terms of the numbers behind this, the science behind this, is SIRC's Guide to Flirting. This is a phenomenal article that you really need to check out. I mention it here because one of the things mentioned in that article is that most of the impression that people will take off of you, their first impression of you, is going to have to do with everything but those factors that involve what you're actually saying. Right. What you're actually saying only accounts for 7% of it. And everything else needs to help you convey the message that you wish to convey and not interfere with it. And that's where this the composure thing comes in. Now, one of the easiest ways in order to acquire composure is to look at people in your environment or even in the movies and see what you like about them. Specifically identify details or characteristics of that person's behavior that you admire, that you find attractive, and then start collecting these. Start building an image of what a person with all of these characteristics would look like, and then slowly convert yourself into that person through practice. So that this is what other people see when they see you. That's right. Practice and go ahead, practice these things in the mirror. Don't be going stealing their talking mannerisms or their specific gestures or anything like that. But for instance, the ability to stand quietly and watch something intently is something that some people find attractive. And if so, you should practice doing exactly that. Or the posture of what a very relaxed and confident person looks like. You can study other people who, to you, you look at them and you think, wow, that person just exudes confidence. Well, what is it about their posture, their habits, their mannerisms that exude that confidence to you? Find those and emulate them. That's right. Where are their hips? How do they set their shoulders? What tilt is their head at? All of these things. It's kind of like acting. And while you're doing this, you also want to be looking for bad examples in other people and also in yourself. And this is where doing this in front of a mirror comes in handy. This is also where working with a friend comes in very handy. Handy because you can start to figure out what social cues you're giving off and the ones that you don't like the message you're sending, you can start to correct those. Having a flirt coach is a wonderful thing because they can catch you when you're doing things that are counterproductive to the whole flirting process. So a couple of the exercises that you're going to engage in here, one of the first ones that you want to do, you're going to need a friend for this and it should ideally be somebody that you know pretty well. What you're going to do is think of a topic that both of you know a lot about. You are first going to give your friend two minutes to talk about this topic topic. And while they're doing this, you are going to echo their behaviors, imitate the behaviors that they're engaging in. And at the end of two minutes, you're going to stop and they're going to do exactly the same thing while you speak about this topic. And this is really important and really valuable. Oh, this is one of those incredible tools that I would suggest everybody do at least once. And when you're imitating the other person, try and imitate the small things as much as you imitate the big things. If a person stops and rubs their eye, do that. If they stick their finger 
finger in the air? Oh, God, for God's sake, do that. If they stare at your boobs... Stare back at their boobs. This will teach you a couple of valuable lessons. The first one is it's going to show you those habits that you're engaging in that you may not be aware of. The second, though, is the really, really awesome one. When two people are engaging in a conversation and they're starting to experience some attraction or affinity for one another, they will often engage in what is called gestural congruence or gestural echoing. And gestural echoing is where you start to subconsciously imitate the movements of the speaker. And the interesting effect that this has is that the speaker starts to like you even more as you echo their movements. It starts to make you feel more similar to them. And so this is actually a method that can be used to get people to feel closer to you, more comfortable with you, happier around you while they're talking with you. And it is amazing. Another thing you're going to have to learn before you get into this flirting thing is the giving and accepting of compliments. Giving compliments is important to learn because you have to learn how to sincerely convey your interest or approval or attraction for another person and do it in a manner that is not at all offensive. And we've talked about in past segments on Dating Tips for Geeks that, for instance, you need to be really careful about when you comment on a woman's appearance, but that there are so many other things you can compliment a person on. Their skill at something and a meeting. If somebody made your coffee a whole lot more quickly than you expected it, you can tell them that. If the waiter gave you exceptionally good service, you can compliment them on this. This is something that you need to do because people almost universally love to receive compliments. Absolutely. But if you don't deliver them effectively, if you don't deliver them sincerely, if you deliver an inappropriate compliment, like for something that the person has no particular reason to feel proud about, then the person's just going to look at you weird. True. Or it could be that they don't know how to graciously accept a compliment. And you have to be ready to expect that, too. And then, of course, the flip side of that is you have to learn how to accept compliments gracefully also. That's actually a very difficult thing. Took me years to figure out. Person says, you did great. Um, okay, I did great. That's not the way to do it, no. This was also difficult for me to learn. I... I specifically remember the situation in which a guy who I wanted to be my boyfriend first told me all you needed to say was thank you. He had complimented me on a coat and rather than just saying thank you, I got into, yeah, well, my mom helped me pick it out. It's a little weird. It's kind of long. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to just say thank you. Smile and say thank you. And similarly, when I was complimented on winning a martial arts tournament at one point, I started going into a diatribe about how I'd been practicing and working hard and blah 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 and that wasn't what they wanted to hear they wanted to hear thanks and part of the difficult thing about smiling and saying thank you first of all there's always the suspicion that the other person is not being sincere in their flattery but I'm going to tell you this you must always on the very first compliment unless it is obviously sarcastic and in no way reflects anything about you as a person you must in every single other case assume that their very first compliment is sincere and then give the person the benefit of the doubt if they proceed to flatter you in ways that are obviously insincere then hey stop giving them the benefit of the doubt give them the boot instead but at least accept that first compliment at face value smile and say thank you but this is where it becomes difficult because after that then what do you do what if they don't say something else that's right in both cases with both handing out compliments and with receiving them the fear of ominous silence afterwards is difficult to handle but there are ways to do it there are one of the first ways is when somebody compliments you for instance on a skill you can say thank you and then turn it back around towards them do you have an interest in this or what is your experience with this do you watch many martial arts tournaments it's also okay to make a joke at that point for instance joke about it and say well it only took me nine years and i'm halfway there I mean, there are always ways to turn this around. Yes, but don't don't be self-deprecating when you do that. Oh, yeah, I guess I did okay. I know I won and everything, but they weren't really all that good, and I wasn't really at the top of my get. They do not want to hear that. No, it's okay to be humble and laugh and make a light joke. It's even better if you can turn it around and ask the other person a question. I mean, remember, they complimented you. They started this conversation. Give them an opportunity to continue it. Remember that the goal of flirting is to make the other person feel special. And if they compliment you and then you immediately start asking them about themselves... That's going to make them feel special. And once they feel special, they're more likely to continue this flirting dialogue with you. So what you need to do is get with a friend and you need to practice giving them a sincere compliment. If you need to explain what you're doing first so they don't kind of wig out because suddenly you're complimenting them and you've never done this before, that's okay. Explain what you're doing. They could probably use the practice too. And after you compliment them, then let them turn around and compliment you.
you. And then try it with somebody who you don't know quite as well. And then try it with somebody at work who you really don't know that well. And then, hey, try it with a complete stranger. And actually, waitresses are awesome to practice flirting with, as long as you don't overdo it. But they are in the hospitality industry, and they do enjoy feeling good about the tables that they're waiting and the customers that they have. And usually they are pretty encouraging to this type of high-level, very social, non-sexual, non-romantic flirting. One of the next things that you need to do is build a pool of discussion topics and techniques that you can use for where to go if the conversation actually continues. Absolutely. This is important because you have to be able to be flexible once the conversation actually starts. And if the person expresses an interest in some odd topic, then if you have a broad range of topics, you can find something vaguely close. If you can't actually discuss it, then at least you can ask them intelligent questions. And one of the best ways to keep a flirtation going is to ask somebody questions on a topic that they are knowledgeable about. Once they've given you some kind of in, you can usually just keep them talking and talking, and they love it. People love to talk about what's important to them. And then related to this is acquiring a wide range of interests if you haven't already done this. Right. This is kind of in the category of becoming a well-rounded person. If all of your interests are tech-related or science-related, then you're probably going to have a difficult time interacting effectively with the non-technical people out there. You are also likely to become bored with a conversation and as a general rule bored people are also very boring oh yeah on the other hand people who are interested in something are usually pretty interesting people mm -hmm. so the major tactic in this is to culture a large range of interests actually seek out things that might interest and fascinate you and pursue learning about them so make a list make a list of all the things that you're interested in all these activities that you've always said wow I'd really like to learn how to play poker or skydiving is something that I would like to learn more about. Astronomy, literature, music, even several different types of music. List of authors you'd like to read. Make a list of these activities and start learning about them. Start researching them. Better yet, start engaging in the activities that you are interested in and that other people around you are interested in. You now have a mutual reason to talk to each other and an excellent opportunity to flirt. And as a bonus, once you actually do get to the dating part, you wind up with a much broader range of things to actually take a date to do. Absolutely. Finally, there's one more exercise that you need to complete in order to build your flirting foundation, and that's to figure out where you'd be most comfortable flirting. So make a list. And notice I said most comfortable. This includes the telephone. If flirting over the telephone, over the internet are two of the places you'd be most comfortable, that's fine, add them to your list. But you need a couple of places that involve face-to-face -face flirting. And this comes back again to the fact that what you have to say is such a small portion of the first impression that people get of you when you meet in person. All these other cues are so critical. This is true. When you're making your list, be sure that you have at least one place where you would be physically flirting, one place where you'd be audibly flirting. And where you're likely to go. And where you're likely to go. And ideally, this should be both. I mean, if all of the places that you list as most comfortable for flirting are out in the real world face-to-face, -face, fantastic. I suspect that won't be the case. I think most of us geeks are really a lot more comfortable flirting from behind a computer. Well, yeah. And that's okay. That's one of the places. But you need to do this face-to-face -face as well. And then the next list that you need to make, and the final list in building a foundation, is to make a list of the people that you'd be most comfortable flirting with. And remember, this is non-romantic flirting. This is low-stakes flirting. So who would you be most comfortable? flirting with? Would this be the person on the telephone when somebody calls you for tech support? Or would this be a close friend in your social circle because you're already geeking with them and, well, we've already explained to you that geeking and flirting are really the same thing? Or would this be if you'd like to start practicing flirting with the opposite sex or same sex? If you'd like to start doing that, would this be somebody at the cyber cafe that you go to? Sure. Baristas, waiters, and waitresses are usually pretty open to flirting. They tend to do it as part of their job, so they don't mind if you flirt back. So make that list, and then these lists are useless if you don't go out and do something about it. So the well, next yeah. step is practice. Practice makes perfect. So now it's time to build your flirting skills. While you're practicing with another person, again, this is with a friend or this is on a complete stranger, either way, you can start echoing their gestures. You can also start echoing their speaking mannerisms and their vocal inflections to an extent. And what I'm talking about here is, for instance, if you're talking to someone who speaks very slowly and you normally speak quickly, slow it down a little bit for them. They probably won't even notice that you're doing it for them, but they will appreciate it and it will create an affinity between the two of you. I also tend to do this naturally with accents. When I'm talking to somebody from 
from the South, I tend to slow down and take on just a little bit of a Southern accent. I don't even do it consciously anymore. It just happens. But I find that it relaxes the other person. Another thing that I do that is very effective and very useful is I start to match my vocabulary a little bit more to theirs. This will help create and strengthen an attraction between two people so that they can continue to flirt. So another exercise you can do is make a list of simple flirting activities. Smiling, winking, saying hi, nodding while the other person speaks, saying please and thank you. Politeness is always appreciated during flirting. And especially because politeness is becoming more rare. So it's not as expected as it once was. And so when it does happen, it's usually received very favorably. You can also try starting a conversation with someone when it's not necessary. For instance, you're waiting in line for movie tickets and you ask somebody behind you or in front of you, hey, I'm trying to decide between these two movies. Have you seen either one and which one was better? Or hey, I really like action flicks and I didn't realize that was playing. Do you know if it was any good? Or if you're in line for coffee, you can ask them if they think that Breve is really better than normal latte. Now this is admittedly a very difficult step to take for a lot of people. This is why you should practice it in an extremely low-stakes circumstance where you have no clue who that other person is and you will probably never see them again. So that if you bobble it, who cares? Doesn't matter. You'll have another opportunity later. Just figure out what you don't like about what you just did and change it next time. That's right. And hey, if it worked, reuse it. That's right. Think of it as an engineering problem. Nobody I've ever met writes perfect code the first time. You figure out what it does wrong, you fix it, and you run it again. This is the exact same thing. Once you actually start thinking of it as an engineering problem instead of a social problem, a lot of the difficulty that people have with it emotionally starts to melt away. Now, there's a particularly cool tool for starting a conversation with a perfect stranger, and it's called an impersonal interrogative comment. This is the formula for asking questions. Oh, yeah. Basically, it's something that you probably recognize. You walk up to a person and you make a statement that's not terribly personal about them, but end it with a question questioning tone. Nice weather, isn't it? Now what this does is it invites a reply but doesn't demand it. It's not aggressive. So it allows the other person a whole bunch of leeway with how they can respond to it or not. Right, because it's a comment, they don't have to respond to you at all. But because you used a questioning tone, they could. They could give a monosyllabic answer. They could make a comment of their own. They could ask you a question. Right, and it also involves a very small emotional investment on the asker's part. And the other thing is that this in no way makes a statement about your intelligence or your awareness of the current situation. You are simply making an observation in a questioning tone. You are providing a very appropriate and non-personal means of allowing the other person to engage in a conversation with you. And it's flirting. It's an open invitation. And then you just basically read the other person's response if they do respond to you and then appropriately gauge your responses. And then you whip out the conversation pool and start making chatty conversation with them. Exactly. If appropriate. Right. I know that it it, it sounds like we're joking about this, but honestly, I use this tactic all of the time. And it is simply amazing the kind of conversations that I get into with people that lead them to tell me all sorts of things about themselves and to engage in fairly lengthy conversations and they don't even know me. And now Rob's going to say, well, you're cute and that's why people talk to you. But I will say that. It's not just me. People use this on me all the time and then I turn around and talk with them and I also observe other people doing this all the time. You see it in the elevator, you see it outside where people are smoking, or whenever people are gathered and preparing to engage in some activity or even just not engage in any activity at all. Now related to this, I do have another exercise for you, and that's to listen to Talk of the Nation. Neil Conan. This man is a phenomenal questioner. He can ask anybody with any interest, any caller, any question, and get good answers out of them. He's pretty amazing. He's a master. Not only that, but listening to it gives you a broader range of knowledge. That's true. It helps you brush up on current topics, but... Next time you listen to this, if you're a listener, pay attention to the way he questions people because it really is fascinating and it really is very useful if you can learn to emulate this. Next, we talked about making a list of those places where you're comfortable or more comfortable flirting and the people that you're more comfortable flirting with. 
Now is the time to put yourself into the social situations where you can actually practice your flirting. But I would like to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, keep it small. Keep it about the other person. Keep it friendly. Keep it complimentary. Keep it non-sexual and non-romantic, at least at first. In fact, I recommend that you do this flirting with people that you have no interest in dating. Absolutely. Pick easy targets. Right. And by easy targets, we're not saying pick people who you're absolutely not attracted to. We're saying pick people who are in situations where it can't really lead to anything anyway, right. where it's friendly and expected, such as in customer relationships, some work relationships. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, like restaurants and your place of employment, women are more comfortable with flirting simply because they have a safety net of the rules of whatever place you happen to be in. If it goes too far for their comfort, they have a way of retreating. But try to keep it comfortable for them. And one way that you can do this is keep it short and, again, removing your own goal expectations. The other thing is observe their cues. If they start to appear nervous, they turn away from you, they start making less eye contact, etc. Look for these cues and respond to them. If, obviously, you've pushed across a line, then you need to stop immediately. But you're flirting not for romantic reasons, not leading them on and not hunting them, but flirting to engage them in a conversation. And remember, you're making them feel good about themselves. Right. So we're going to sum this up. But before we do, the last thing that you need to do to build your flirting skills is you need to remember that although you're working on this, not everybody else is. And so you're still going to encounter people who haven't even started this process, who can't take a compliment, who don't know how to start a conversation with you. And what I would like to suggest to you, because this will be rewarding for you and for them, is to make it as easy for them as possible. Send signals with your eyes, with your tone of voice, with your posture, with your gestures, all of this that says, I'm interested in you and I'm interested in what you have to say and I would like to start a dialogue with you and make it as easy as possible for these people to engage with you. They'll get practice and so will you. Absolutely. And you'll make both of you feel better. And of course, this wouldn't be complete without briefly discussing rejection. Well, yeah. And you will be rejected. You flirt with enough people, you will be rejected. I'm rejected. I flirt with people, they totally ignore me. Oh, yeah. Or worse, they glare at me. I've become a master at handling rejection. You have to, really. (laughs) You have to. But the other thing that you will find is that more often than not, people will respond favorably. As you learn how to do this, as you learn how to echo other people's behaviors, as you learn the appropriate times to nod and for how long and how frequently, how to meet a person's gaze the appropriate percentage of the time while talking and while listening, how to really listen to another person, you absolutely will find that people will be more interested in talking with you and in flirting with you. So, summing it all up, some of these suggestions, some that we've already given you, some that are new. Again, start small. Start by practicing with somebody you know. Mm -hmm. Practice in a mirror. Figure out who you want to be and become that person. And as you start practicing with other people who you don't know, do it in low-stress circumstances where you're comfortable with people that you're comfortable with. Diversify, 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 (laughs) both in your tastes and your habits and your range of knowledge. And remember, this is for social networking purposes. This is what you do when you want to build your social network. All those people around you who may later lead to jobs, somebody to help you move, and yes, even dates. But this is what you're building. And think of it as an engineering problem because it's a whole lot less personal that way when you fail. It is. And the other thing is do it immediately. When you see somebody walk into a room and you're interested in them, as soon as you figure out a way in with them, as soon as you can make eye contact a couple of times across the room, you need to go talk to that person. Or if you're really uncomfortable talking to them, scribble a note on the back of one of your cards and give that to them. Well, if they've just walked in, give them about five minutes to settle. But otherwise, yes. That's the caveat. But the longer you wait, the more you build up apprehension. And guys, guys in particular, but women too, and in fact, I've done it myself, the longer you look at that totally gorgeous woman across the room and think of all the millions of ways she's going to shoot you down in front of the whole room, the less likely you are to ever take that opportunity. And maybe she wouldn't have shot you down, but you're never going to find out. So approach them immediately. If you're going to be rejected, get it over with right away so you can move on and go flirt with somebody who's more interesting. And finally, remember the big rules here are have fun, have fun, have fun. Yep. Make the other person feel good and you in turn will feel good and you will build your social network. If you're not enjoying yourself, it shows and the other person won't enjoy themselves either. Similarly, bored people are boring people. And interested people are interesting people, people that you want to be around. And so with that, get out there, practice, 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 do yourself some flirting and let us know how it works out for you. 
Would you like to play a game? That depends, of course, on what you mean by game. Games are usually seen as a source of entertainment. In a relationship, playing games is a source of annoyance. For a system, gaming is considered cheating. For many people, a game is something that's not taken seriously or not taken in the spirit that it's intended. This definition doesn't explain football or the Olympics, which are both quite serious and entirely as they were intended. Game theory is a science of social interaction. It seeks to answer the question, given a specific set of circumstances, what is the most logical choice? When you look at it that way, a game exists any time a group of people is presented with a goal and a set of rules. When looked at from this perspective, all of society becomes one form of game or another. Our economy is based on a game where the prize is money and the rules discourage theft and misrepresentation. Politics is a game for power where the rules discourage dishonesty. Our religions are a game for influence in the face of immorality. Even flirting is a game for love and attention where the rules make dragon poker seem elementary. One of the qualities of games is that they tend to test a focused set of characteristics. This may be as complex as the strategic financial planning that drives businesses or as simple as a test of recall in a spelling bee. It's often very tempting to try and use other characteristics to try and improve your chances of success in a game, but in the enlightened nomenclature of games, this is referred to as cheating. It would inevitably cloud the effectiveness of a spelling bee if we added rules for taking cues from the audience. Unfortunately, the more complex the characteristic is that the game is attempting to measure, the harder it is to identify when the game diverges fatally from its original intent. For the most complicated of games, the original intent is so diffused that it becomes inaccessible to the participants, the spectators, and even the judges. We forget that there's more to the game than winning. An excellent example of this is politics. As originally proposed, it was a game for identifying the person who could most fairly and effectively govern and make laws. While it would seem to make sense to determine this by examining the candidate's soundness of plans and convincingness of speech, most of us instead vote based on the time-honored measures of who my friends are voting for, belongs to my favorite party, or attracts the most corporate sponsorship. Another problem occurs when the people playing the game can't agree on what game they're playing. This is common in relationships. When someone accuses you of playing games in a relationship, what they really mean is that you're playing by your rules instead of theirs. It's an interesting exercise to identify and name these games as a way of telling your partner that you're done playing them. It shortens an argument considerably when you don't have to play Guess What I'm Thinking, the I Don't Mind Trap, or Stop Me or I'm Leaving. Games are very important to our lives. They help us prioritize and test, motivate us and give us direction, and encourage us to compete and cooperate. When the rules get so complicated that we can't name them, or when a prize becomes too great to take lightly, many of us forget that it's a game or deny it in self-defense. Something deep inside us insists that there must be an only in the phrase, only a game. Hello everyone and welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. Today I'm having a conversation with Trig Falote, who is, among other things, a software engineer, a movie star, and a general round interesting person. I've shared many interesting conversations with him and thought I would share those interesting conversations with you. Hello. So one of the most interesting things I've heard you say has something to do with soap bubbles. Oh, you mean in, involving that? Oh, no, not her. Never mind. No, okay. No. All right. The other soap Oh, the other soap oh, The other soap The other soap, so, the other soap Okay, this is radio. The other one doesn't work as well anyway. 
No, no, no. I was comparing the universe or the large-scale structure of the universe to bubble bath. Um, you can compare it to beer foam if you like, but I... I beer is good. Beer is... Well, I, I, I enjoy bubble bath more. Yeah, the universe is, is on a large scale a lot like bubble bath, which is kind of a surprising thing if you've ever looked at the sky. There's all these stars and stuff, and they seem to be kind of scattered all over. And if you just looked at that, you'd kind of figure they were fairly uniform. But if you start plotting where the galaxies are and figuring out the distance to them and, like, try to build a three-dimensional model in your bedroom... What you find is instead of this uniform spread of galaxies, you've got sheets of galaxies and filaments of them and globs. Basically a lot like uh, bubble bath foam, where you have these gigantic voids. And then on the edges of the voids, we've got the sheets of galaxies. And where these sheets come together, we have the globs and filaments. And it's kind of an odd and unexpected thing and really makes you, me, and actually everybody wonder how and why it got that way. What made the universe like that way and, and kind of like the voids that don't have stars and much of anything else in them, that's one of our voids of knowledge. We don't know. Nobody has any really brilliant, conclusive idea for why the universe looks like that. It just does. So the structure of the universe kind of resembles the structure of our knowledge. It does, it does. There's the stuff we see every day, like the galaxies nearby us. And as long as we don't look too far afield, we don't notice that there's these giant gaping voids that we know nothing about, and we're just used to not thinking about. If we just turn our head the right way. If you turn your head the right way or check actually even down under your feet, there's that hole in the floor that you're just so used to stepping over that you don't notice it's there anymore. What's a good example of these gaping and yet not so obvious holes in our knowledge? Sticking with the whole physics thing, a rather small under our foot but giant gaping hole, if a giant gaping hole can be small, is the whole concept of renormalization in field theory. Renormalization means that where your theory blows up, you cut out the infinities and the things that don't work, put in the numbers that you actually cribbed off of your experimental results, and go on with your life. Mm-hmm. Not all theories actually work that way, but most quantum mechanical theories, other than gravity, can be fixed that way. But you still are glossing over this fundamental gaping hole, like why is the electron not infinitely heavy, which maybe you've noticed if you've ever gotten up or picked up something. Electrons are not infinitely heavy. That's darn, that's darn convenient. It is, it is. It, it, it's Although when I'm trying to get out of bed in the morning, it feels that way. You know, nonetheless, you did get out of bed. So at least at some time in the past, the electrons that make up your body structure were not infinitely heavy. On the other hand, why would you expect them to be infinitely heavy? Well, electrons have electric charge. And what you know about electric charge is if you have like charges, they repel. You have to put energy into them to squish them together. It's like if you have two magnets... Right. If you have similar polarity, you push to get them together. Same thing with two charges. An electron, as far as anybody can tell, and as far as how it acts, appears to be an infinitely small point, but it's got a charge. Otherwise, if it didn't have an electric charge, we'd have to have another name for it. Like neutrino? Like neutrino, but it would have to act different in other ways, too. Uh, electrons, they are not. Electrons, they are not. And electrons have charge. They have substantially more mass. Neutrinos do have mass. It's finally been conclusively shown that they do. Electron, anyway, has all has charge. And somehow, it got compacted down to a zero space. And to push the charge together introduces energy in the system. And to make it infinitely small, it would have to be an infinite amount of energy. So you cut out the infinite, the infinities. And there's actually a couple of other infinities that come up when you start talking about the bare charge. We're oversimplifying. So there's actually even more infinities we're going to just remove from our equation and go over to our particle accelerator where we measured 0.511 million electron volts, which is how much an electron really weighs, and we put that in our equation instead. Okay. And we go on with our life and completely forget that our equations are fundamentally built upon these gaping holes because, except for that, they work incredibly well. I bet. Except for the parts we don't actually understand. Okay. One of those other things that I've never really understood is virtual particles. Mm -hmm. Like, do they exist or do they not exist or do yes. they sometimes exist? Yes. Yes. So, so I really do understand it. Exactly. You do. Okay. It is. It's, it's, it, you understand it completely. And in fact, that is, that's the basic concept of quantum mechanics altogether. People are always saying, is it a wave? Is it a particle? Is it's it a wave and a particle. 
No, it's what it is. The quantum mechanical thing is the fundamental reality. And when we look at it, if we call it a wave, we call it a particle, we're making an approximation. It's the real thing. Our waves and our particles are kind of our made-up constructs. That's what's not real. So same thing with what you were saying about virtual particles. It's all of those things. It, they are what they are. Originally, you talk about what you could know. That's most famously referred to as the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. The classical formulation of that is that the uncertainty that you have in the momentum of a particle and its location multiplied together has to be greater than Planck's constant over 2 pi. Okay. Also known as h-bar. It's written as an h with a little cross through it. Okay. And you can't know it better than that. If you do the math and do the theories and so forth on how you could construct experiments, you find that, no, you can't measure it more precisely than that. Well, that's an interesting and perhaps frustrating concept, except if you do more figuring out of the math behind it and the physics behind it, it's not that you can't measure it, it's that that kind of precision fundamentally doesn't exist. Hmm. It's not that you don't know where it is, it's that the particle doesn't have a specific position. An amazing example of that is um, single particle scattering, Okay. which is if you fire one electron or one photon down a path that has a beam splitter, okay. basically that has a 50% chance of going one way or the other, and you combine them again at the end, if you did it with a whole beam of light, like out of a laser or something like that, sure. you get this diffraction pattern. You get you know bright spots and dark yeah. spots and so forth. If you do it one particle at a time, you still get the diffraction pattern. But it's only one, so how's it interfering with itself? with itself? Anyway, that's an amazing thing, but the thing is, so it fundamentally doesn't have a specific location until you actually go and look at it. And even then, it's not just you're uncertain of where it is, the universe is uncertain as far wow. as where it is. And that's not just momentum and position, that's also other things that are you know conjugate pairs. So other pairs for that would be energy and time. A wonderful and amazing consequence of that is that we are awash in this sea of virtual particles that for short periods of time might exist. So just like before, if we picked a small enough space, we couldn't be sure that a particle was in there and that it was moving at a particular speed. And the more sure we were about where it was, the less sure we were about how fast it was, and vice versa. And the same thing's true about energy and time. And that's a much more bizarre concept because the higher energy the particle is, for a shorter and shorter period of time, we can't be sure that the particle isn't there at all. Over a long period of time, we can be pretty darn sure that there's no electron there. Over a somewhat shorter period of time, we can be pretty sure that there's not a cow there. But for a sufficiently short period of time, we can't be entirely sure that there isn't even a buffalo there. <laughs> for something like a buffalo, or even something smaller like a shoehorn, those are pretty darn short periods of time. So it doesn't create much of a measurable physical effect okay. of virtual buffaloes and anti-buffaloes. But when you deal with particles, it does. And you can even measure that in a macroscopic way with what's called the Casimir effect. The Casimir effect is done by taking two conductive plates, metal plates, putting them parallel to each other and a short distance apart. Remember a moment ago we were talking about particles being waves mm -hmm. and particles. Well, they're both and neither. It kind of depends. However, one thing about waves is they go up and down and they have what we might call a node, which is where they cross zero. Fundamentally, the zero crossing of the wave has to happen when it touches a conductive boundary. That means only waves that cross zero at the position of one of those plates can exist between them. So we don't know whether or not there's a proton there or an electron. Absolutely, we're not sure. Maybe there's one, maybe there isn't for a short enough period time, but we do know that the ones between the plates have to have their, a waveform that crosses zero at the location of the plate, okay. and that constrains how many there can be, okay. whereas outside the plates, anything goes. And so, necessarily, even though, as far as we know, there aren't any, and when we actually do a whole accounting, no, there aren't any, but there could be more per cubic inch outside of the plates than inside because of the constraint of the conductive planes. Okay. That's such a bizarre, theoretical, complex-to-explain thing. 
yet you can measure it because just in the amount that you would calculate, there is a force pushing those plates together that is proportional to the difference in the density of virtual particles that don't really exist outside of the plates versus the ones inside that don't really exist. So wow. it's like you've got stuff that doesn't really exist pushing stuff around, you know, kind of a physics ghost, as it were, you know. Yeah, it bizarre. is bizarre, and it, it's amazing that it can happen on a, a large-scale level. What we see at a large-scale level, what we're used to thinking of as normal, is, in real terms, probably the least normal of anything. Another example of how the virtual particles affect things on a more cosmological scale is uh, Hawking radiation. That's... Um, has a name very similar to that of Stephen Hawking, which is a fortunate coincidence because he happened to come up with it. So because the name's the same, it's easier to associate the two. But you're used to thinking of black holes as black. Things go in, they don't come out. Well, it kind of turns out that that's not exactly the case. You remember those virtual particles we were talking about a moment ago that might exist or might not, just for a brief period of time. Over the long span of things, the equations all have to balance out. You aren't creating mass anywhere. You aren't creating charge. You aren't creating any of the other characteristics that particles may have in the long term. In the short term, when the particles appear and disappear, they actually tend to come out in pairs. You have a particle and then its antiparticle appears at the same time. That balances out so that the charges balance and so forth. Like an electron and a positron. Like an electron and a positron. The positron being just like exactly like an electron except the electric charge is, is reversed, it's positive. Where that ends up doing something weird for you is in the case of black holes. Sometimes in this wash of virtual particles, one of the virtual particles will fall in and the other one won't. At which point, to balance the equations, it can't just pop out of existence anymore because the charge has to be conserved, whatever, and it goes flying off into space. And so the black hole, even though this virtual particle is falling into it, it just actually ended up losing energy. The smaller the black hole is, the tighter the radius is, the faster this happens. And it will slowly radiate away. Wow. So it's a weird sort of a concept. So black holes aren't really an end where things are just gone because they put the energy back out again. Okay, so how does all this relate to Bose-Einstein condensates? Uh, pretty much just because both of them involve the whole quantum mechanics and in particular the uncertainty principle. And not so much virtual particles. Again, virtual particles are more deal with the uncertainty between time and energy. Bose-Einstein condensates exist because of the uncertainty principle dealing with momentum and position. Now, to understand what a Bose-Einstein condensate is, which sounds complicated and bizarre, and I assure you it's much more so than it sounds from the name, a Bose-Einstein condensate is an entirely new form of matter, having existed, to the best of our knowledge, for about 11 years at this point. The first such incident uh, occurred uh, up the highway from here, about 30 miles or so, up at the uh, University of Colorado, when two people, uh, Weinman and Cornell, decided to basically create this theorized state of matter. First of all, you have to understand what states of matter are. So you're probably used to solids, liquids, gases, plasmas. Sure. The sun is made of plasma. Sure. There's a little bit in the fluorescent light up there. People have been pretty familiar with those for as long as people have been familiar with anything. Well, Bose-Einstein condensate is a whole completely different state that matter can be in. And it takes a bit of, of doing to get there. Matter as you're used to thinking of it. Regular everyday stuff like buffaloes and shoehorns and sealing wax is made up of fermions. Electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks for that matter, which make up the latter, are all fermions. Fermions, they obey what are called Fermi statistics. The characteristic that is important for a fermion is it has what's called half-integral spin. Basically, it's kind of spinning like a top, but it's in a unit that's one-half of an integer. Like, it has plus a half, minus a half. So it's got to spin twice in order to get a full integer out of it. Right. Exactly. That is a very strange concept on a macroscopic level, but it happens constantly on a quantum mechanical level. Okay. We're actually very lucky that these things work this way. 
because things with half-integral spin have the odd quality that no two of them of exactly the same type can be doing exactly the same thing in exactly the same spot. So, for example, no two electrons can be in the same place doing the same thing. So, actually, two electrons can be in the same space if one is spin spinning up and the other one spinning down, okay. but no more, because those are the only options. Okay. The happy coincidence that happens because of that is that... In fact, I'll double-check here. Yes, it seems to be still true. You have not collapsed into a dimensionless pool of goo. Well, I do that occasionally at parties, but... Uh... Right. It, it, it actually can make a lot of, of things that you do in daily life more difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fermions. They have half-integral spin. Since I mentioned half-integral spin, there must be something with integral spin. Okay. And that is what's called a boson. And there are lots of different kinds of bosons, but a very familiar one that happens to be sharing the room with us is the light coming out of the light bulb. Okay. And you can actually put all the light that you want, all the particles of light, in exactly the same space and have them do exactly the same thing. And if you do that, that's what's called a laser. Okay, back to, if somebody, if, if any of you remember, we were talking about Bose-Einstein condensate. Mm-hmm. And now some of you back in... Second grade? First grade? Probably covered this one obscure quality of fractions, which is that when you add a half and another half, you get a whole. So you remember we were talking about Bose-Einstein statistics apply to things with whole integral spin. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so what if you took two fermions, which have half integral spin, and stuck them together? Well course, you can't stick them together because you can't have two of them occupying the same space doing the same thing. And da, 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 da. Right. So these guys up in Boulder said, well, wait a moment. Now here's this whole uncertainty principle. If we can know their momentum as precisely as possible, and the best way to do that is make that momentum as close to zero as possible, then not only will we be so uncertain as to where they are, so will they. And if we can make them so uncertain that they will actually not be sure that they're not in, all in the same space. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they built an apparatus to make a little tiny spot with some rubidium atoms colder than anything had ever been in the universe as far as we know. Mm-hmm. And these guys did it in Boulder, and the apparatus that they used to do it with was about the size of a VW minibus and cost about the same. Well, cost as much as a good VW minibus. <laughs> you know, you can get a you can get a lot of cheap, awful minibuses in Boulder. But regardless, it's amazing that you can do something for the price of a used car that had never been done in the history of the universe before. Yeah. That's an accomplishment. And so then what happened is that once these things essentially became so uncertain as to where they were that they merged into this goo that acted like one giant super atom with all the atoms piled upon on each other, kind of like uh, photons do in a laser beam, except not moving. Wow. Why did they create a black hole and fall through the center of the Earth or something? Well, I don't think that was expected to happen. And, I, and uh, again, you've still got that whole uncertainty thing. It still occupies a certain amount of space. Okay. The amazing thing about this experiment in Boulder wasn't just that it was something so totally new, but that it could be done for a few thousand dollars. That's what I like to call small science. In the last few years, we've had all these discoveries of new trans-Neptunian objects. One in particular keeps getting bandied around as, quote, Planet X. Planet X just happens to be the first one, and I emphasize first one, that happens to be bigger than Pluto. I'm not going to call it Planet X. Its, its formal name is 2003UB313, which I think is a lot catchier. It rhymes better, and it's easier to remember. There's another one also that's a little bit smaller than Pluto, but it's very near and very bright by comparison, similar in distance to Pluto, and that's 2005FY9. Uh, another easy to remember catchy name. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing about that one is that with current technology, somebody with a good amateur telescope, and I mean, this is not something that fits on the top of a mountain. This is something that fits under your arm. Again, you're talking about something that could be done for a couple thousand dollars. Somebody with that level of equipment could actually see this trans-Neptunian object. Let's not call it a planet, even though it deserves to be called a planet about as much as Pluto does. 
And that is an amazing thing, not just because of those two. People have been looking for a, quote, Planet X ever since they found Planet P back in 1930. That's 75 years. Why didn't anybody find it? And there's a bunch of reasons for that, but one of them is that they're kind of a ways off the ecliptic. If you've ever looked at a picture of the solar system, you see all the, the planets are around in circles around the sun, but it's all flat. You're so used to that, you don't think that, oh, why are they all flat? You don't see anyone going swoop over the top. Because we never looked anywhere else? Well, in this particular case, yes, because both 2003 UB313 and 2005 FY9 are not where people are used to thinking, oh, that's where up the next planet's going to be. So the secret to finding these things isn't necessarily throwing money at them. It's having an idea of where to look and doing it. So it's, it's determination and looking where other people might not think to look. I've heard a lot about dark matter mm -hmm. and you really want to talk about stuff that's taking people by surprise i wouldn't say it's at the top of the list but it's way up there i mean dark matter is another great example of those voids in knowledge we've come up with a name it's like you know if you're a medical doctor once we come up with a name for your syndrome we think we understand well no we just named it maybe we named it after the doctor you know that doesn't mean we actually know what's going on and dark matter is like that we have this problem with the, the universe that it keeps not acting like we expect it to. You know, it kind of started all the way back with Einstein. He had this whole idea for how the universe would behave on a large scale. I mean, first he tackled special relativity, which is amazing. It made everybody happy. And then he worked on general relativity, which works on acceleration and gravity and links the two and does all sorts of other amazing and wonderful things and made it very difficult to come up with the concept of a universe that stays put which was what Einstein and everybody else was expecting at that point. Einstein at the time came up with this thing he called the cosmological constant, which is basically, again, coming up with a name for what you don't understand. In this case, it would be better called a fudge factor that, if you tweaked it right, gave you the ability to have a universe that just stays put. Yet another one of those little cutouts. It's a little cutout, yeah. But the thing is, then everybody who was going out trying to prove that the universe is just staying put found out that it wasn't probably heard of Hubble and Hubble's Law, and you probably haven't heard of Henrietta Leavitt, who actually did the work, but he found out that, no, actually, the universe wasn't staying put. Everything was flying away, and as you looked at things further away, they were moving faster. And we go back to Einstein and the cosmological constant, and if you just omit that, it works fine with an expanding universe. And, of course, that's completely not the case at all. The universe keeps doing things that are completely out of left field. The overwhelming majority of what the universe does at this point that we've, we've found, we actually don't know what it is that's doing it. For example, we've got the galaxies flying apart, and we've got the Big Bang, we've got all of that going, but then when we start looking a little bit more closely, the numbers don't add up. The galaxies aren't moving like they should based on how much stuff we can see. Okay. Another telling problem is the movement of things around galaxies. Early in galactic formation, you form these things called globular clusters, which are these groups of old stars that orbit around and sometimes through galaxies. Sure. But they form kind of a halo around a galaxy, kind of like the Earth cloud does around the solar system. Sure. Except that if you look at how they're moving, they're moving around something that weighs about 10 times as much as what we can find. And that's a bizarre thought that, okay, here you and I are looking around the room. There's a table, there's a chair, uh, there's a desk and so forth. It seems like we can list everything that's in the room. Sure. And wouldn't it be a bizarre concept to say, oh, no, actually the stuff that you can see, measure, kick, throw around, move, etc., breathe, look at, and detect is less than one-tenth of what's actually in this room. That would be bizarre. That would be a bizarre concept. Yeah. And it's even a more bizarre concept when it's the thing that is determining how things are moving, like globular clusters and galaxies and so forth. And so in the fine tradition of science, they came up with a name. Well, we didn't see it, so we'll... Um, Dark matter! Yes, sure. yes. It's dark because we don't see it or because we're completely in the dark about what it is. Right. Not to say that people haven't come up with theories. There are lots of theories, but nobody has come up with any theory yet that conclusively makes sense of it all. This is something that any of you out there listening to this program should feel very free to do. By next month, maybe you'll come up with an idea that explains what dark matter is and you'll advance the state of human knowledge. But it is a bizarre concept. And in fact, fairly recently, they've even discovered what they call, quote, dark matter galaxies. 
In this case, it's something that looks like a galaxy in terms of what it does gravitationally, but there's no galaxy there. So that creates a suggestion that maybe what happened with these galaxies, these islands of stars in space, is that these clumps of dark matter formed first and dragged the gas and stars and everything else where they were hanging out. Hmm. And maybe that's why the uh, universe looks like bubble bath. Could be. But then you got to figure out why does dark matter look like bubble bath? You've only mm-hmm. moved the problem back one more step. Mm-hmm. So that's something else to keep in mind while you're thinking about how to explain the universe and dark matter. So, okay. Whew. All right. We figured that out. We've, we don't know what it is. We don't know how it got there or anything like that. But we have a name for it. Okay. The universe at least makes a little bit of sense. Or it did up until about 98, 99, when, with greater precision, we find out that, oh, actually, things aren't slowing down anymore. Actually, now the galaxies, instead of slowing down like we'd expect with this orderly universe of matter and now dark matter, where it goes boom, everything's really fast at the beginning, and then it all slows down. Well, no, now it started speeding up again. Current estimates are that the slow changeover from slowing down to speeding up probably happened about 5 billion years ago. That's actually real close to when the Earth formed. This could be a coincidence. It could be some deep political conspiracy. I think Mulder did it. Yeah, could be. Could be. I'm betting on coincidence myself. Regardless, that's not what you would expect from dark matter. And they came up with more tests and more precise things. I think the best celebrated bunch of experimental data came from the Wilson Microwave Anisotropy Probe study. And that came up with the conclusion that the universe is currently composed of about 73% dark energy. Now, lest you get confused, I should point out that dark energy is another one of those names. We know even less of what dark energy is than we know about what dark matter is, and we don't know what dark matter is. But what we do know is that there's about 10 times as much dark matter as regular baryonic matter. And then there's three times as much of that, of this stuff, that acts even weirder. And what does dark energy do? Well, dark energy, instead of attracting things together, it pushes everything apart. So, a couple years ago, we were kind of wondering, okay, does the expansion of the universe slow to a stop? Does it turn around and everything starts falling back in amongst itself and we get what's called a big crunch and then maybe it all goes boom again? Or does it kind of slow down slower and slower and slower and slower indefinitely? And that last had been by far the leading candidate. But all of a sudden, there's this dark energy thing and things are speeding up. And so in a couple of years, we've gone from something being a brand new, completely off-the-wall idea to something that's almost universally accepted that completely changes our concept of the eventual fate of the universe. So every few decades, and sometimes more often, we've completely changed our idea of what the overall universe is like, which is, is really an amazing thing. And it's all happening because of somebody coming up with an idea. In some senses, it's a little bit scary because we know so little about dark energy and how it acts, but how it could act. It could, for example, result in another end of the universe, which is called the Big Rip. Because we've got this dark energy thing, which is now believed to be almost three quarters of what makes up the universe, that's driving everything apart and actually causing the acceleration of that. What we have is the possibility that as it continues to dominate the universe in the future, that it will begin pushing things apart faster and faster and at smaller and smaller scales. Eventually, it will start to dismantle this foamy quality of the universe that I was mentioning before. It'll just diffuse it. Then we have the galactic clusters. They'll be pulled apart by the influence of dark energy overwhelming the gravitational attraction of the dark matter. Poor dark matter seemed so big, you know, a couple of years ago, and now it looks like it'll probably lose out. And then um, after that... You get the galaxies torn apart. Eventually, you get down to the solar system level, and the planets start getting stripped apart. And eventually, working all the way down to the point where individual atoms become torn apart, and the universe becomes this quark-lepton soup that's extraordinarily diffuse. That's not really a very pleasant thought, but it is extraordinarily far in the future. Good thing. Good thing. I have plans Um, for next week. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a next week thing. It's not a next trillion, trillion years thing. It's, It's a lot further out than that. Well, that's been a very interesting conversation. It's been a pleasure as usual. Thank you very much. Ah, pleasure for me.
Welcome to the chatter portion of the podcast. This is Tiffany. And this is Rob. And if you're just listening for content, then at this point you can fast forward. See ya. This is just the notes and news and updates portion of the podcast. Welcome to all the new listeners. We got slashed at it on January 30th and wound up transferring 23,000 copies of episode 8. Yay! Weehaw! So, hi guys! Welcome. Hope you enjoyed the most recent show. Hope you're still with us. Well, if they're not with us, then they wouldn't be hearing this, would they? I hope a lot of them are still with us. If you want to listen to just the music that we play underneath the interviews, then you should listen to our companion podcast, Aural Icebergs, which is hosted by our lovely Tiffany. And also, the version without music beds turned out to be quite popular. About 7% of the downloads of episode 8 in February were of that version, which is reason enough for us to continue producing the two versions of the show, so if you'd prefer to hear the show without the music backgrounds, you can download the individual episodes from our website or grab the No Beds version of our RSS feed and plug that into your favorite aggregator. And thanks to everyone who sent us feedback on that. We'd like to remind everyone to visit our forum, which has been a little bit more active lately. The Entice content is at the top half of the page, and the bottom half of the page is currently being occupied by our City of Villains villain group, so you can just ignore that unless you're a City of Villains gamer. And if you are a City of Villains gamer, come find us on Infinity. (laughs) That's right. Come join us. So check it out. Register if you're so inclined and get involved in the discussions or leave us some feedback or suggestions or offer some ideas for future segments of Entice. And by the way, if you do post out there, send us a private message with your snail mail address and we'll send you a brain. Still have lots of brains left. Speaking of which, brain Brains, 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 brains. We really need a brain song so he'll stop doing that. Yeah. This is a challenge. That's it. I'm going to keep doing it until you send us a brain song. So this time around, we sent brains to Marty in Michigan, Chris in Massachusetts, Sean in Virginia, Lycacel in Missouri, Gavin in Nottingham in the UK, Todd in Oklahoma, Isaac in Wisconsin, Enso Zero in Virginia. Hi, Enso. Hey, Enso. And Amy in Maine. Yay, we have a female listener, another female listener to send a brain to. All right. So I just have to say, that flirting bit was tough. And I would like to encourage everybody to check out that SIRC Guide to Flirting. There is a link in our forum. It is in the Geek Dating Tips section. And also, I am working on a segment on advanced, i.e. romantic flirting tips. So that'll happen in the future. But so far, that SIRC Guide to Flirting is really the best one I've found. So it should really be required reading for anyone who wants to become a better flirter. You can also check out the sources that I've been using to research flirting and dating tips segments. I've actually purchased a number of books and I'm sort of midway through many of them. You can check those out as well as my brief reviews in my reading list on our forum again in the Geek Dating Tips section. Trigva is one cool and interesting dude. If you want to find out more about him, then you can go visit his website at www.trigva.com. Let's see if you can spell it. Nope. Okay, it's T-R-Y-G-V-E dot com. Just after we recorded that segment, there was an interesting update on the dark matter thing. Those wacky guys over at Cambridge apparently examined a bunch of dwarf galaxies that are orbiting the Milky Way, and they counted all the stars, and they subtracted all the stars, and they found out that no matter how many stars were in the dwarf galaxies and how bright they were, that they all had the exact same amount of dark matter. That dark matter is like about a thousand light years across and the mass of about 30 million suns. Now, I haven't done any of the actual math or the physics involved with this, but it occurs to me that if there were elementary particles, just like protons and neutrons, except a thousand light years across and 30 million suns in mass, they'd have a density of about 0.13 micrograms per cubic kilometer. How would we ever know we were inside one of those? Talk about a direction we never look. And finally, I would like to invite artists who would like to submit their music to go ahead and send that to me. I am continually looking for music for both Intellectual Icebergs and RL Icebergs, so if you are an artist out there, then hey, send me your music. Send me a link. If there are specific songs you'd like me to consider, then that's very helpful, especially if you have, you know, 150 songs out on Acid Planet. It can be a little time-consuming to listen to them all, although I do try. Also, on the topic of music, I have really run into a wall on trying to contact two artists. Most of the music that I find, I find on one of the websites that has independent artists. I then try to track down the artist by finding an email address for them. If I can't find a direct email address, then I search them on the web and try to contact them through whatever music sites they're on. 
And there are two artists who I have had no luck with, and I'd really like to play their songs on RL Iceberg. So if anybody out there has any ideas or knows anything about these bands, I am all ears. The first one is an artist by the name of Oscar Monopolis. That's not the guy's real name. And the song is Trash Spy. The other one is a band called Molasses, and they have a song I really like called Downtown La Paz. Both of these artists I first found on GarageBand, although I've also found them in other places. I think that Molasses might be defunct now, so I may be just out of luck on them. But Oscar Monopolis seems to still be producing music. I just can't get the guy to respond. So anybody has any ideas, help me out. And that's about it for Chatter. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Oceanica by Jontum. The music for the interlude is Welcome My Spirit Guide by Synthetic Movements. The music for the second segment is Sam Spade, None for the Better by Synthetic Movements. The music for the chatter is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic Movements. The Speakers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you that if you're going to bring gum, bring enough for everyone. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Onk Infinity production.